The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we are going to discuss the eradicating exploits of Zeus, perhaps the greatest monster slayer in all of mythology. We are going to begin with the cosmology, delving into how the Greeks conceptualized the creation of the world and the emergence of the gods. And with that done, the fundamental framework of Greek mythology delineated to a basic degree, we are going to go over, in chronological order, the cataclysmic conflicts that begin with Zeus's ascension and end with Zeus's supremacy over the universe, which will see him kill Campy, defeat the Titans, destroy the giants, and finally, lay low Typhon, the most powerful monster in all of Greek mythology. Alright, let's get into it. First there was Chaos, the Great Void, then emerged Gaia, Earth, Tartarus, the Abyss beneath the Earth, and Eros, Sexual Desire. Following these four came a time of independent procreation, Chaos producing Nyx, Night, and Erebus, Darkness, and Gaia producing Uranus, the Sky, Uria, the mountains, and Pontus, the sea. And many more primordial deities were brought forth into creation that we will not name. The primordial deities, the first gods in Greek mythology, were the material manifestations of the universe, the very regions later gods would rule over. For example, Uranus was the sky itself, while Zeus later came to rule the sky, and Pontus was the sea itself, while Poseidon later came to rule the sea. Gaia took Uranus as her consort, and together they had many children. First the three Hecatonchires, then the three Uranian Cyclopes, and then the twelve Titans. Here's the passage from the Library of Greek Mythology that describes this. Uranus was the first ruler of the universe. He married Gaia and fathered as his first children the beings known as the Hecatonchires, the trio of hundred-handers, Briareus, Cotus, and Aegis who were unsurpassable in size and strength, for each had a hundred hands and fifty heads. After these, Gaia bore him the Cyclopes, namely Arges, Steropes, and Brontes, each of whom had a single eye on his forehead. But Uranus tied these children up and hurled them into Tartarus, a place of infernal darkness in Hades, as distant from the earth as the earth from the sky. And he then fathered by Gaia some sons called the Titans, namely, Oceanus, Coius, Hyperion, Creus, Iapetus, and the youngest of all, Kronos, and some daughters called the Titanides, namely Tethys, Rhea, Themis, Mnemosyne, Phoebe, Dione, and Thea. As you can imagine, Gaia wasn't exactly thrilled about having six of her children trussed up and tossed into Tartarus. This was a source of sorrow for her and impelled her to make moves against her husband, beseeching her children, the Titans, to rise up and overthrow their father. To this end, it was Cronus, the youngest of the twelve, who answered the call. Gaia fashioned him a sickle of grey adamant, and with this weapon in hand, he lay in wait, ready in ambush. When next Uranus, who was filled with desire, came to enfold Gaia in the expanse of his celestial ceiling, the trap was sprung. Cronus burst from his place of hiding and castrated Uranus, casting the severed sex of his father into the sea. This marked the permanent separation of earth and sky, an important development in the universe becoming properly ordered, 
and marked the crowning of a new king, Cronus usurping his father. Unfortunately, Cronus proved no better than his father, the sovereign scepter passing from one tyrant to the next, for he re-imprisoned the Hecatonchires and the Uranian Cyclopes. Cronus took his sister Rhea as his wife, and together they had six children, Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus, the six of them later becoming the first six Olympian gods after they established themselves atop Mount Olympus. Gaia and Uranus later divulged the pronouncement of prophecy, inexorable and confounding though it was, to Cronus, telling him that he would one day be overthrown by his son, just as he had done to his father before. Of course, this information was virtually useless because prophecy cannot be forestalled, meaning that fighting it is futile and that people who try to do so are driven to radical, ineffective action that gets them nowhere and prevents nothing. Such was the case with Cronus, who, in an attempt to evade the tendrils of prognostication that sought to ensnare him, swallowed each of his children the moment they were born, the idea being that no child of his could rise up to challenge him if they were imprisoned in his own belly. As happened earlier with Gaia, who lamented the imprisonment of her children within the earth, so too was Rhea similarly affected, bearing children only to have them devoured at the moment of their birth racking her with emotional torment. Rhea resolved to keep Zeus, her sixth child, from sharing in the foul fate of her first five children. And to explain what she did, here's another passage from the Library of Greek Mythology. Angered by this, Rhea went to Crete while she was pregnant with Zeus, and brought him to birth in a cave on Mount Dicti. She gave him to the Kurides and to the nymphs Adrastia and Ida to rear. So the nymphs fed the child on the milk of Almathea, while the Kurides, fully armed, guarded the baby in a cave, beating their spears against their shields to prevent Cronus from hearing the child's voice. And Rhea wrapped a stone in swaddling clothes and passed it to Cronus to swallow, as if it were a newborn child. And Cronus promptly swallowed the stone without deigning to give even a cursory inspection, and having swallowed it, he believed prophecy thwarted and his kingship secure. When Zeus was fully grown, he enlisted the help of Metis, the daughter of Oceanus, and she gave Cronus a drug to swallow, which forced him to disgorge first the stone and then the children whom he had swallowed. And with their aid, Zeus went to war against Cronus and the Titans. When they had been fighting for ten years, Gaia prophesied that the victory would go to Zeus if he took as his allies those who had been hurled down to Tartarus. So the war between Cronus and Zeus raged for ten long years, advantage vacillating throughout, neither side able to press their superiority to the point of triumph. After these ten tumultuous years, Gaia approached Zeus, imparting to him how to bolster his power and best his enemies. He was told to venture down to the chasm of Tartarus, and here is where Zeus's monster-slaying career began. With his five siblings at his side, he plunged into the abyss, where he encountered Campy, the monstrous jailer guarding the imprisoned Hecatonchires and Uranian Cyclopes, ensuring there were no escapes. Zeus and his intrepid companions killed Campy and freed the prisoners, and a greater boon that swelled their strength could not have been hoped for. The Hecatonchires were paragons of power, superlative in both size and strength, indomitable forces of nature to behold, and they would rain down ruin upon the Titans using their combined 300 arms to hurl volley after volley of huge boulders, gouged from the earth 
leaving craters behind, or broken off from mountains, depleting whole ranges as a quarry is depleted by men hewing rock. The Uranian Cyclopes, while sorely wanting in raw destructive power compared to the Hecatonchores, were, unlike their more brutish and brawny counterparts, blessed with skill and subtlety, especially when bent towards craft. They were master smiths, and they made three awesome weapons without equal. To Hades they gave a helmet, Poseidon a trident, and to Zeus thunder and lightning, the most powerful weapon in all of Greek mythology. Personally augmented with amazing armaments and their numbers added to by prodigious power, it wasn't long before the gods, in concert with the Hecatonchores and the Uranian Cyclopes, pounded their enemies into submission. The Titans, once beaten, were bound and banished to the depths of Tartarus, and the Hecatonchores, prisoners no more, were made the jailers of the Titans, just as Campy was theirs before a fortuitous turn of fate freed them. Following the defeat of the Titans, Gaia was once again angered by the imprisonment of her children, first the Hecatonchores and the Uranian Cyclopes, and now the Titans. Previously, the extent of Gaia's involvement was either inciting rebellion or sharing critical information. But this time around, she assumed a more involved role, becoming a behemoth broodmother who produced monstrous children to avenge the harsh treatment of her older children, which is how and why the giants and then Typhon were brought into the world. When Uranus was castrated, his genitals cast into the sea, droplets of blood fell to the ground and impregnated the earth. Apparently this was quite the protracted pregnancy, because it was only after the titans were defeated that Gaia finally gave birth to the giants, working through them, her abominable avengers, to exact retribution. Here's the passage from the Library of Greek Mythology that describes what the giants looked like, and that covers how the Gigantomachy, the war between the gods and the giants, began. The giants were unsurpassable in size, unassailable in their strength, and fearful to behold because of the thick hair hanging down from their head and cheeks. And their feet were formed from dragon scales, and they hurled rocks and flaming oak trees at the heavens. Mightiest of all were Porphyrian and Alcyonius, who was even immortal as long as he fought on the land of his birth. It was he, moreover, who drove the cattle of the sun from Erethea. Now the gods had an oracle saying that none of the giants could be killed by the gods, acting on their own. But if the gods had a mortal fighting as their ally, the giants would meet their end. When Gaia heard of this, she searched for a herb to prevent the giants from being destroyed even by a mortal. But Zeus forestalled her, for he ordered dawn and the moon and sun not to shine and pluck the herb himself. And he sent Athena to summon Heracles as an ally. All-out war erupted between the giants and Olympus. Almost every god joined the fray, even the fates joined in bludgeoning giants with bronze cudgels. The gods were outnumbered, so the giants who weren't engaged were handled by Zeus, unleashing a great conflagration upon their superior numbers with thunder and lightning. And because no giant could be killed without suffering injury from a mortal, Hercules, while each giant writhed in its death throes, shot them with arrows, which would have been superfluous damage in almost any other circumstance, but here was indispensable, ensuring that none recovered after lethal damage was dealt. As happened before with the imprisonment of the Titans, Gaia was similarly enraged by the annihilation of the giants. She coupled with Tartarus and born to them was Typhon, the most powerful monster in all of Greek mythology, and the most terrible threat Olympus ever had to contend with. 
Here's a passage from Hesiod's Theogony that describes Typhon and Zeus's defeat of Typhon. Typhon's arms are employed in feats of strength, and the legs of the powerful god are tireless. Out of his shoulders came a hundred fearsome snake heads with black tongues flickering, and the eyes in his strange heads flashed fire under the brows, and there were voices in all his fearsome heads, giving out every kind of indescribable sound. Sometimes they uttered as if for the god's understanding, sometimes again as the sound of a bellowing bull whose might is uncontainable and whose voice is proud, sometimes again of a lion who knows no restraint, sometimes again of a pack of hounds, astonishing to hear, sometimes again he hissed, and the long mountains echoed beneath. A thing past help would have come to pass that day, and he would have become king of mortals and immortals, had the father of gods and men not taken sharp notice. Great Olympus quaked under the immortal feet of the Lord as he went forth, and the earth groaned beneath him. A conflagration held the violet dark sea in its grip, both from the thunder and lightning and from the fire of the monster, from the tornado winds and the flaming bolt, and an uncontrollable quaking arose. Hades was trembling, lord of the dead below, and so were the titans down in Tartarus with Cronus in their midst, at the incessant clamor and the fearful fighting. When Zeus had accumulated his strength, then, and taken his weapons, the thunder, lightning, and smoking bolt, he leapt from Olympus and struck, and he scorched all the strange heads of the dreadful monster on every side. When he had overcome him by belaboring him with his blows, Typhon collapsed, crippled, and the huge earth groaned. The huge earth burned far and wide with unbelievable heat, melting like tin that is heated by the skill of a craftsman in crucibles. And vexed at heart, Zeus flung Typhon into broad Tartarus. And finally, having narrowly avoided myriad dangers and having vanquished the greatest threats Greek mythology could conjure up, Zeus's kingship of the cosmos was crystallized. He barely escaped imprisonment in the belly of his own father. He freed his siblings from gastric incarceration. He braved the abyss of Tartarus, slew Campy, and freed his monstrous and mistreated uncles, thereby gaining their allegiance. And he defeated the Titans, destroyed the giants, and laid low Typhon. Certainly, there were still obstacles, the mythological mosaic of the ancient Greeks packed with peril. But following the defeat of Typhon, there wasn't, to the best of my knowledge, any subsequent threat that really qualified as existential, that had the possibility of cosmic upheaval, shattering Zeus's throne and supplanting him. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.